0: Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning. Uh, We are in the middle of a series around here uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. What we're doing, however, is we're taking the Ten Commandments as they come to us in Deuteronomy 5, and we're using those to kind of springboard to other places in the book of Deuteronomy that act in many ways as further expositions of each of those commandments. Uh, We're going to do that again this morning, um, coming to the Ninth Commandment. Uh, However, we're going to look at a parallel passage in Exodus as well. Uh, We've entitled this series... And you you may or may not be aware of this. Uh, The Difference Grace Makes. That's the title of the series. The Difference Grace Makes. Uh, For two reasons. First, to keep in our minds the order of what God has done to save us and what we must do in response to his salvation. So there's an order. In the Bible, God always acts first. In this case, he came to Israel's rescue in Egypt. He brought the people out of Egypt. He saved them. And then he gave them the law. He acted first. Then he called them to act in obedience in response to what he had already done to save them. So what we want to say is, is we don't obey the law to earn our salvation. We're saved by grace. It's something God does apart from us. And then he calls us to obediently and in gratitude uh, live according to the commands that he has laid down for us. But there is really a second reason uh, why we've entitled this series, The Difference Grace Makes. And that's this. It's to remind us that claiming to have been saved by grace really does make a difference. It matters how we live that part of what God is doing in bringing salvation to the world is to uh, take a people and to make that people holy so that as they live together, the rest of the world will look and see their deepest longings for love and belonging, putting on flesh in that community of people. Israel was to be the tangible expression in many ways of the kind of life that God promises in salvation. They were to be the kind of human community God envisioned at the very beginning when he made the man and the woman and put them in the garden. They were to love God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength and to love one another. And if you love God and if you love one another, then you obviously won't hate one another. Right. You won't murder one another you'll be patient and kind and forgiving you won't steal you'll be generous towards one another and sacrificial you won't covet and be full of envy but you'll rejoice when one of your friends is successful and this morning in this command we'll see if you love one another you won't use your words to destroy others but to build them up and encourage them and protect them and so we come to the ninth commandment and i have to be honest with you that in many ways as i was looking three months ago at this series, I did not look down the list of what we were going to do and think that's the one that's going to really come home. But the more I've gotten into this and the more I've thought about the reality of this command as it relates to the others, I really believe this is the most important one. Because as I pastor you and as I walk among you, I I really feel like the greatest potential to sin against one another really is in how careless we can be with the things we say. And I want to say, as the pastor of this church, I think we got a lot of work to do here. And so I really, want to, I really want to just set that expectation because I think there's going to be a lot of really, really important stuff that we have to look at this morning. So if you would come to the scripture with me, we're going to read there uh, and then comment on it for a few minutes. We're going to read from Deuteronomy 5, verses 6 and verse 20, then Deuteronomy 19, and then a parallel passage in Exodus chapter 23 that act as... Um, expositions of what it means to not bear false witness. It's printed for you in your worship folder in the insert. It'll also be on the screen behind me. You're welcome to follow along in your Bibles if you have them. Uh, We'll be kind of going back and forth, so just be aware of that. Let's read together, Uh, beginning in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 5, Then I'm just going to read straight through. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, Listen to this. Then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. <clears throat> it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Exodus 23, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not. Fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from the false charge. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress the sojourner, for you know the heart of a sojourner, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is God's Word. Uh, three things that I want us to see this morning from these passages. Uh, just this, that as we talk about what it means to use our words well, I want to talk about the power of your words the goal of your words, and the skill of using your words for good. So those three things, the power of words, the goal of words, and the skill of using words for good, and then some applications. You'll see those connecting to the three points in your outline as I've given it to you. So just think with this about this with me for just one minute. Let's talk. Let's begin by talking about the power of words. Okay? According to the Bible... And in human experience, really, words count. they have consequences. Now, this scares me to death, but the, but the scripture says that God will judge every idle word. What that means is, is that you and I will have to give an account for every word we speak throughout our entire life. Does that frighten anybody else in here besides me? Words count. <clears throat> Proverbs 1821 says, Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Now think with this, think through this with me for just one minute. God spoke. <clears throat> he spoke a word, and the universe leapt into existence. His words have creative authority and power. We were made in his image, and therefore, part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that our words, like his, have creative power. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, let me warn you of something. There's a lot of bad theology out there that you've got to wade through, you know, that says things like speak things into existence or, you know, name it and claim, or whatever this thing might be out there. But that is a twisting of what the Bible means when it talks about the power of our words. God and only God can speak to nothing and nothing becomes something. But that power is reserved for him alone. Okay, are we clear on that? However. I mean, I'm going to ask you to do something unusual this morning and and look back at the call to worship with me for a minute or not the call to worship. I'm sorry, the passage in Ephesians four. And I want you to see. Excuse me. You guys need to pray for my my voice i don't know what's going on <clears throat> but in Ephesians 4 <clears throat> Paul lists some of the offices in the church you see that he says <clears throat> apostles prophets evangelists pastors and teachers now what's what's significant about that that's in verse 11 all of those offices are speaking offices And by implication, their words are powerful. They affect, we're told there, the perfecting of the saints and the edification of the body. Very interesting there. The word perfect means literally to equip or to give strength to or even to heal. So the words of the prophets and the apostles and the teachers and the pastors, they have the power to perfect, to heal or give strength to and also to edify, which is a word that literally means to build. So, when pastors and teachers stand up here and speak, what we're to understand is their words are strengthening and healing and building and outfitting us so that the church can grow strong and mature and not be tossed to and fro by every wind. That's what Paul says. But this is not just something that's reserved for the professional Christians, because if you keep going down in Ephesians 4, Paul begins to say the same things about the church corporately as it functions and all of its individual gifts. Ephesians 4.16, it builds itself up in love. It's the same word there, that word build. And here's how, if you go back to verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way. And so our words to one another are just as powerful as the words that are spoken from this place up here. They cause us to grow. They have the power to strengthen and to heal and to build up. And so Paul later warns in Ephesians 4.29, That no corrupting talk should come out of our mouths. Now, all of my life, I thought that meant, you know, you shouldn't cuss and you shouldn't say bad things. Right. Paul has something very specific in mind. He says no corrupting talk, but only what builds up. And therefore, by implication, what is corrupting is what does not build up, what tears down instead of what builds up. The implication is our words have the power to cause others to be built up, to be strengthened to be healed, or they have the power to destroy. Now think about the building metaphor for a minute, because that's really the word here is literally to build a house. Uh, And so it's, it's a neat metaphor to really get inside of. It's saying there are raw materials, there are gifts and there are passions and there are temperaments that are in every one of us. And the words that we speak to one another have the power to take those raw materials and to put them together and to arrange them in such a way that it creates something beautiful. We have the power through the words we speak to one another to give one another the confidence in the exercising of our gifts to the glory of God and the good of the church that we so desperately need. Our words, can they have power to build together and to encourage and to strengthen. And by implication, then they have power to just smash and destroy. They can weaken they can create insecurity and uncertainty. Our words can call out greatness in one another or they can condemn. I was um, I was confronted with this not long ago, very powerfully in my own family, came home from work one day. and My wife told me the story about interacting with Canaan, who's our nine year old and Canaan um Part of what they do on a daily basis is they have some reading time, and Canaan uh, finished a book that he was reading a little too quickly, and so Ashley began to quiz him, and became very obvious that he had not, in fact, read the book. And as she as she began to kind of interrogate him about this, you know, he just burst into tears. Canaan, what is the matter? His seven-year-old uh, brother is an accelerated reader, reads like crazy. He's the athlete, you know, just kind of how that works with kids. Uh, as she kind of got in there and began to figure out what was going on with Canaan, uh, it became pretty obvious that Isaac was reading the same book and he was catching up and Canaan wanted to make sure that he could get finished before Isaac got finished. And as Ashley kind of began to continue to go in there, she's like, what is going on? What What are you so upset about? What? What's the matter? Why are you so emotional about this? And finally, she was able to kind of probe in there, this huge like confession came out, and he says, Daddy thinks Isaac's a better reader than I am. And the only thing that'll make it better is if Daddy tells me he didn't say that. I thought, holy smokes. Daddy said Isaac was a better reader than I am, and it just crushed him. And the only thing that would make it better to hear, is to hear his dad say that he didn't think that. And it's just a great illustration for me. You know, we've taught our kids to sing the nursery rhyme or the old child's rhyme. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's that could not be further from the truth. It should be sticks and stones can only break my bones, but words can destroy my soul. They can kill. So Proverbs 12, 18 says reckless words pierce like a sword. But the words of the wise bring healing words, penetrate, they can cut and wound and destroy or they can heal and strengthen and build. And so you don't have to read very far in the Bible to see how strongly it warns about the tongue. James, as Jonathan quoted earlier, says the tongue is a fire that can set ablaze a great forest. Can I just warn you of something? One careless word could start a fire that could destroy this entire church. And James says, You can tame a lion. He says, You can tame a crocodile. But no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. And so, the application, obviously, as we come to the Scripture and think about this, is be slow. The Scripture says, Be slow to speak. It doesn't say be quiet. It says, Be slow. It means be deliberate, be thoughtful, be strategic, show restraint. And self-control, think and pray and then speak. Because if you don't, and if you don't understand the power of your words, you'll destroy relationships and create a lot of trouble. And now if you come to Deuteronomy 19 and you see how this applies to what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 19, it makes sense then that God would include how we use our words as one of the top ten. Right? Don't bear false witness. Now in the immediate context, as you see it in Deuteronomy 19 there, has reference to the process of litigation. If you've ever been in a court or if you've ever been accused of something, you know, you know how powerful the testimony, the words of others are, whether they're speaking the truth or not. In the legal system, both then and now, words acquit and they condemn. And so part of Israel's calling was that they would not use words to destroy one another through lying and misrepresentation and bearing false witness, um, both in the courtroom and outside of it. And so if you see there in Deuteronomy 19, some of the precautions that Moses laid down to ensure that this practice kind of fleshed itself out. First, if you notice in the beginning verses there that more than one witness had to be present. Uh, and that's just wisdom. And I, But I asked, you know, my dad's an attorney and I wasn't really even sure, but I asked him, you know, in, in our court system today, can, can the witness, can the testimony of one person condemn? He said, absolutely. Moses says, no, not just one. There has to be two or even three. You know, it's just wisdom. It keeps personal vendettas in check. It, makes sure, it ensures the process of justice. So that so It's not just two people who are kind of fighting who get in there, you know, and one has something bad to say about the other and just goes back and forth. He says more than one witness has to be present. But then there's a second thing that you see. And this is the part that is really, really shocking to me. He says if it's found that a person is accused of some someone else falsely, then here's what you're supposed to do. The punishment that was to come to the person on trial would then be given to the false witness instead. And the reason is given there in verse 20. If you look, the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. I want to hear. I want you to hear me say this was and it is a great evil and therefore had to be punished severely as a deterrent to future violations. But consider this. It might feel harsh to read that there in Deuteronomy 19. In a similar way that capital punishment does in other cases, as we've looked at the law, but but please know what what we're reading here about the, the judgment that came to the to the one who violated this command is just a foreshadowing of the ultimate judgment that will come to all of those who use their word cares, carelessly. There's coming a day when we will all stand before the judgment seat of the God of the universe and he will call us to account. For the way we've used our words. Words are powerful, they matter. And they will be judged. And if that's true, you feel that? I mean, do you feel can you feel that? I mean, if that's true, then we better get a firm grip on what God is aiming at and giving us this command. We better get get an idea of what the goal is. So you remember we said we were going to look at three, three things first, the power of our words and then the goal of our words. So what's the goal? Uh, Turn, turn and look at Exodus chapter 23 with me. Or, Or go there in your outline and you'll see it's an obvious parallel passage to the passage in Deuteronomy. In Exodus 23, both in verses two and verses six, we see what the goal is, and it's this word that we looked at last week. And that keeps coming up as you read the Old Testament. Um, it is in verse two, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit signing with the many. Here it is. So as to pervert justice. Go down to verse six. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. <clears throat> the goal is righteousness and justice. And in the Bible, those two words usually go together. Right, the idea of righteousness and justice. If you read the scriptures, you know, especially in the Old Testament, you'll see constantly the scriptures are bringing you back to those two concepts of righteousness and justice. And in the Bible, righteousness means, it literally means, it's not rocket science, but it means right. Right? It means straight. It's used of objects that are or do what they're supposed to be and do. Righteousness means that something exists for the purpose, and it does what it was created by God to do. So God gave Israel, and he's given us these commandments. Don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness. He's trying to show us what righteousness looks like. And I don't know, have you noticed, if you're reading in community Bible reading, it's amazing to me that as you read through Deuteronomy, the Lord keeps saying, this is for your good. Obey me for your good. You know, and what 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 we're supposed to see in that is is that through the law, and through these ten commandments, what the Lord is doing is He's showing us the kind of life we've been made for. He's saying this is how you work. This is what righteousness looks like. And what happens is, is sin takes what is straight and it and it makes it crooked. Sin takes sin takes the design and it violates it. It perverts it. It causes it to go out of whack or to go offline. And when that happens, what you've got to do is if righteousness goes offline, if what is straight gets crooked, then what you have to do is you have to do justice to take what's crooked and to make it straight again. Doing justice means confronting the way that sin has perverted the design that God has, confronting the the systems where sin is ruling and working to bring them back to a state of righteousness. And so what we're learning, what Moses is teaching us is that you can use your power in one of two ways. You can use your power To, to do justice, or you can use it to create injustice. You know, when you use your power to help the powerless, to wholeness, you're doing justice. But when you use your power to crush the weak and to advantage yourself at your expense, at their expense, it's murder. You're perverting justice. In the same way, last week we saw you can use your money and your material possessions to restore righteousness, to do justice, or you can use it to unravel it. So when you share your money, right, when you help the alien and the sojourner, the widow and the orphan, uh, you're doing justice. But when you keep all of your stuff to yourself and, and you just you just spend it on yourself, that's called stealing. It's perverting justice. You see how this works? The ninth commandment says you. <laughs> you can use your words. <laughs> to do justice. Or you can use your words to pervert it. And you use your words to do justice when you use them to promote neighbor love, when you encourage and build up, or when you use honesty or confession to bring peace and reconciliation to a relationship where there's been tension or hostility. The church is right. We are a righteous community. There's righteousness and justice among us when we show one another neighbor love. It's subtle. But notice in Deuteronomy five at the top of your page there that Moses uses the word neighbor. He says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, I mentioned that last week that Romans 13 says all of these commands are summed up in one saying, love your neighbor as yourself. So they're all about neighbor love. But this is the first time Moses uses the word. Don't bear false witness against another because he's your neighbor. To call somebody a neighbor was a significant thing. It means to assume a certain obligation to that person. It means if you call somebody a neighbor, your neighbor, you're saying to that person, I'm invested in you. I'm for you. You know, when we talk about neighbor love, we mean that in a very real way, we are for one another and not against one another, that we bear with one another. We forgive one another. We show grace to one another. <clears throat> and the way we speak about one another and the way we speak to one another Really reveal whether or not this is true uh, one of the, one of the great teachings of the scripture is is that our words expose our hearts towards one another. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks there's a direct anybody ever experienced this? There's a direct line of communication between the heart and the mouth. direct line of communication. and that's really what my concern as I sat with this this week, then I think there's a, we have a lot of work to do here because, you see, you can use your words to promote and to protect neighbor love or you can destroy it. And that means we can't be flippant or careless with the things we say, that we have to feel the weight of our words and to use them to promote the neighbor love that is a part of the righteousness of the community of God that he's calling us to. So you see the ninth commandment, this ninth commandment, do not bear false witness, against your neighbor so if that's true if that's the goal if the goal really is to encourage and build up and promote neighbor love and not destroy it then the skill that we have to that we have to learn in order to be people who can do this faithfully you find it right there and again verse 20 of deuteronomy 5 when he says when 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 the lord says do not bear false witness against your neighbor do you see those two the two sides of that do not bear false witness against your neighbor so we're called to speak the truth and speak words that are truthful, but we're to speak words that are loving. We're to speak words that are true, but we speak them to our neighbor so they're in love. If you speak truthful words that are not loving, or if you say loving words that are not truthful, either of those are going to destroy. The ninth commandment calling us to speak the truth. <laughs> but the whole point of speaking the truth is to be for one another, to do it in love. And so... We have to ask the question, how then do we grow in the skill of speaking the truth and love so that we can find a way to be faithful to the command that has been given to us here? And if you think about it, and this will resonate with you, I think, but there really are two errors that we fall into, don't we? And it's just human nature. We fall into harshness on one side and cowardness on the other, harshness and cowardice. So we really, and it would be fun to have a show of hands, but I'll spare you. But most of us in this room, we either some of us really excel at the truth without love. Right. We are we excel at the truth without love. And these are people who have no trouble speaking the truth. (laughs) They can see right into a situation and see the sin and they have the courage to say something about it. But in the process, they're not really for the person. So I was thinking either two things. Here's what I find I'm learning about people. And here's what I'm learning about this sort of people. A lot of times this sort of person will talk to other people and not to that person about it. Or they insinuate so that what you feel is just, man, they're really annoyed. Or they confront, but when they do, they do it in such a way that the person they're confronting really can't feel that they're for them. So a lot of us really excel in this idea of truth without love. But then there's this whole other category. And I venture to guess that more of us are in the category. I mean, there are a lot of people that I come across that really excel at the truth, at the love without truth. And these are the people that are nice and kind, but who have no gumption and no courage to really be, be loving to people by speaking truth. Now, the only way to obey the ninth commandment is to have both. To speak the truth, but to do it lovingly. To be truthful, but to be for your neighbor, not against them in your truth-telling. You have to have both. So, how do you get both? Where do you get the courage to speak the truth, to be bold, and to say hard things to people for their good? And at the same time, where do you get the softness to do it in love, so that even when there's confrontation, the other person will know you're for them and not against them? See, that's what we need. We need both courage and softness. We need courage and softness in and their heart. You know, a lot of people excel at courage. And a lot of people excel at softness, but hardly anybody has both. So how do you get that? And the answer is you can only get that by staring at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because you see on the cross, think about this with me. On the cross, truth and love meet. I mean, God is a God of truth. We owe him everything that we are. But this Bible says that we want to be our own masters and that none of us has ever come close to treating God as he should be treated. So in truth, he should punish us for our sins. But because he loves us, he wanted to save and forgive us because he's a God of truth. He must punish sin because he's a God of love. He sent his son to die as our substitute. Jesus died so that God would not have to choose between truth and love. And if you can stare at the cross and see the awful wrath of God coming against sin, but then see it coming down on Jesus instead of you, see, that's how you get the skill of speaking the truth in love. That's how you grow in that. You have to stare at the cross and witness in Jesus' death and sufferings the terrible truth of your sin and yet the infallible truth of God's love for you. I mean, it should sound like a broken record to you by now. But if you look at Exodus 23, verse 9, Moses says, you shall not oppress a sojourner because you know what it's like to be a sojourner. You were sojourners in Egypt. You know the heart of a sojourner, he says. Moses says, don't forget. Don't forget where you were and what God did to bring you from where you were to where you are now. Moses says the problem comes when you forget that you're a sojourner and that God rescued you. In the same way, in the same way for us, the problem in this particular you know, point in our lives, the problem comes when we forget that we're sinners or when we forget that we're loved. See, why do you run other people down and use your words to tear instead of build up? Let's be honest, it makes you feel better about yourself, right? Can I get a nod? You with me? I mean, it makes you feel right to point out how someone else is wrong. It makes you feel good for somebody else to be bad. Why is it so hard to confront another person and tell them what they need to hear when you know they'll be angry with you and they may even end the relationship with you? Why is it so hard? Typically because you need that person's approval so much, it just cripples you. And so in both cases, do you see what's behind both of those things? In both cases, what you need is approval. What you need is the absolute security of knowing your love, because if you knew you're loved, you wouldn't have to constantly be proving your love worthiness by running everybody else down. Instead, out of a complete assurance of your belovedness, you could rejoice in the belovedness of others and not have to constantly one up them. You know, you'd be able to really love people and to tell them what they need to hear because you won't need to be loving and protecting yourself. You'll be free to love and to speak words they need to hear and what you need, what, what what the what we're learning that we need there is we need to be encouraged out of our fear and our insecurity. We've forgotten that we're loved, and only the gospel can do that, because only the gospel, as you stare at Jesus upon the cross, dying for your sins, only there can your heart truly be satisfied that there is one, and it's the the one that really matters, and he loves me. So the gospel can give you courage. Secure you up out of your fear so that you can you won't have to run people down. You you can speak the truth in love. But see the wonderful thing about the gospel is not only that, it not only encourages us out of our fear and our insecurity, it also humbles us out of our hard heartedness and our apathy. You know, you can forget that you're loved, but you can also forget that you're a sinner. And when you forget you're a sinner, you know what happens. You'll be harsh, you'll be critical, you'll be condemning of others, you'll be impatient, you'll be just annoyed, self righteous. So I'd ask this morning, have you forgotten that you're loved? Have you forgotten that you're a sinner? Look to the cross. See Jesus hanging there, broken, bleeding. Your sin did that. But he didn't go begrudgingly. He came all the way from heaven to earth to die because he loved you. And the more your hope rests in him, the more my gaze and your gaze is fastened on him dying on the cross for our sins it will we will come, you know, that that truth will come into our fear and our insecurity and give us the truth, give us the courage to speak the truth. But it will come into our arrogance and our self-righteousness and humble us so that when we speak it, it will be in love. And so. To wrap up this morning, then, what are some of the ways that we can apply uh, what, what what we're learning here in the way that we relate to one another? And I would just say there's a couple things. And the first is there's an obvious application, I don't know about you, but in my own life toward repentance. And I would just ask you, where do you need to repent? I mean, are there relationships that are strained? If so, I'm telling you, most of the time, most of the time, if there if there is a if there is something in a relationship that is strained, most of the time it is because there are words that have not been said. I'm learning that. So how can you use your words in those relationships to do justice and to bring healing and reconciliation? I'm praying. I'm going to be praying this afternoon for conversations to happen that have been needing to happen for six months or eight months or a year or five years or 20 years. Where do you need to repent? Secondly, let me just ask this question. Ephesians 429. It's there. It's in your it's in your um, assurance of pardon. Ephesians 429. Ephesians 429. Let no no, let no corrupting or some translations say unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Ephesians twenty nine. Let me just ask, what would happen if we took Ephesians twenty nine and we just said we're going to be committed to obeying that without qualification? What would happen? I mean, it grieves the Holy Spirit, Paul says. When we act towards one another in bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. I love that. Clamor. I love that. And slander and malice. He says that the work of the spirit is that we would be kind and tenderhearted and forgiven. So what if we what if we came together and, and say, you know, we as a church, we as a people, we as friends, we're going to be absolutely, utterly, completely intolerant of corrupting talk. No corrupting talk. Only what builds up. What would that be like? Can you imagine that? That would be amazing. And so just four bullet points to close about what that would look like. First, it requires wisdom. Paul says, build one another up as fits the occasion. So here's what you're going to have to do. If we're going to commit to being completely intolerant of corrupting talk, the first thing you're going to have to do is you're going to have to commit to praying before you speak. Pray before you speak. (laughs) Where Where there's sin and where there's confrontation that needs to happen, Talk to Jesus about it before you talk to the other person. Can you see where that's wise? Anybody can I get an amen? Thank you. Right. Talk to Jesus before you talk to them. Second, it requires trust and privacy. So if we're going to do this, let me just make a suggestion. Can we commit to not speaking to anyone else about it before you speak to the person that it involves? Don't talk to someone else about me. Talk to me about me. I'm a big boy. Call me and tell me to put my big boy panties on first before you come. Right? But I'm a big boy. Come and talk to me about me. Third, it requires faith. So easy to grow cynical, to look at somebody else's sin and to say, golly, I'm so, they'll never change. We never have any right to be anything but hopeful for one another. We cannot grow cynical and annoyed by one another's sins because Jesus didn't grow cynical and he's not annoyed at ours. We have to remain hopeful for one another to not just dismiss and say, you know what, she just drives me crazy. No, 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 no. She's your neighbor. Get in there and love her to greatness. It requires faith. And then finally, it's a work of the spirit. In other words, to do this well, you have to be full of the Holy Spirit, and therefore the only way we will ever get this done is if we are people who who just refuse to neglect the means of grace by which the power of the Spirit comes into our lives. Are you giving yourself to the means? Are you giving yourself to the things that God says He's going to use to bring the spirit so that the Spirit can work through you in this case that you would you would be trained by the Spirit to use your your tongue to speak words that build and edify and encourage, rather than tear down and destroy and smash to pieces. The difference grace makes, we are to be a holy people. One of the most powerful representations of that holiness in our midst and to our city would be that we would come to understand the power of our words, that we would make it our goal to use our words to promote and protect neighbor love and that we would pray and beg that God would come by his spirit and grow us in the skill of speaking the truth in love. And so let's pray together this morning just that. Father, we need your help. I have to confess, Father, that I am absolutely frightened to death of the day that I will stand before you and you will ask me to give an account of every word I've spoken. I will have no choice on that day to, but to flee to the protection of Jesus Christ who died for my sins because my sins will be right there before me. And so I come and I, I rejoice and I, I pray you would help us to rejoice in Jesus Christ who is our substitute and the one who died for us, but to also feel the weight of what you, of what you're calling us to and be quick to repent where we need to and to not just be content with mediocrity and, and to not just fall prey to cynicism and to say, you know, that this will never change, but that we would be a people that would put one hundred percent obedience as our goal before us, that we would use our the power of our words in one another's lives to build and to encourage and to cause to grow and not to destroy pray for conversations today that would be redemptive conversations that would bring justice to broken relationships. I pray for words to go out among us that would take crooked paths and make them straight. Come and give us the spirit to grow us in this skill because we so desperately need him and we're so foolish. Come and give us courage where we're cowardly. Come and humble us where we're proud that you may be glorified in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you forgotten that you're a sinner? Have you forgotten that you're loved? Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. It is wonderful. As he hung on the cross, the crowd sneered him. They mocked him. They cursed him. And in the curses of the crowd, he could hear the curse of his father as his wrath came down upon him in judgment against sin. But because the wrath of God came down upon Jesus, I can raise my hands and speak the good words of God over you. These words in the benediction are meant not to tear down and destroy. Jesus was torn down. Jesus was destroyed. So that as I raise my hands, you might go if your faith is in him with the promise that these words are given you to bless and encourage and build and grow you. So receive them as just that, as God's good word spoken over your life to heal you where you're broken, to receive the benediction. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.